Hello and welcome to episode 32 of Journey to Organization. I'm Rebecca Saltzman uh, from Balagan Be Gone, and I am really excited to speak to you all this week. Um, I got a question from a lady. She called me, I guess, right on the cusp of when I did last week's show before I had a chance to check all the messages, and she left me a second message this week. And after I heard her message last week, I had sort of um, really like prepared this whole thing in my head. And then, hashkacha pratit, of course, I read um, the Torah tidbits that the OU puts out every week. And in it was uh, a Dvar Torah by Rabbi, Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of England. And it, it would just hit the nail on the head exactly what I sort of been trying to say. I said it a few weeks ago in a different episode when I mentioned like some, some a lady asked me, why should I care where my trash goes? And this sort of, this answer from Parshat Noach, it's, it encompasses that question plus this other question that this other lady asked me. Now, the first time she called me and asked me this question, I couldn't hear all the details. I tried to transcribe the call as best as possible. She called me again and left me a second message. So I have a better um, idea of what she was saying because the second message was a little more clear. Just as a reminder, when you do leave me a voice message, please speak slowly and please um, talk as loud as you can because for a lot of reasons, like... I don't know what they are, but for a lot of reasons, different reasons, it could be we don't have a good connection when you call, or maybe you're speaking a little bit too far from the mouthpiece on the phone. Sometimes I really can't hear the messages. Even I turn my volume all the way up or I put my headphones in and I still I still can't hear. So uh, I was just, this, this idea really came into, um, like made, well, like the lights went off and a light bulb went over my head and I was able to connect these two ideas really easily. Um, and I, I, I mean, the whole Dvar Torah is really great, but I'm only going to read part of it today after I tell you the question that the lady um, asked me. So the lady says to calls me and says, I enjoy shopping. I like retail therapy. You said I, I should get a very a few high-quality pieces of clothing so that it can last longer, but I enjoy shopping. And when you do the math, if I buy 10, you know, $10 shirts that I can rotate throughout the year, uh, that's the cost the same as five better quality shirts. And it's a great question. And I thought that I sort of answered this over time, but I guess I'm not being really clear about it enough. There's a few issues here when, when we hear that question. The first is, the shopping makes me feel good. Okay, so we can address that. The shopping makes me feel good. The second is, why is buying better quality better than buying lesser quality? So the first thing is, is shopping makes me feel good. Great. I'm not saying don't go shopping. I'm saying don't go shopping aimlessly. Go shopping with a plan. Make a list. Be organized so you don't buy too much. The, the key for me with organization is when you buy too much, you can't maintain your organization because you just have too much stuff. It's, it's Organization of stuff is possible. You can organize a lot of stuff, but you can't maintain it because there's too much and it just gets overwhelming and it's a constant cleaning and cleaning. When you actually have less stuff, it's easy to maintain because you don't have to always clean it up. So that's the, the, the downfall of having... 
10 pieces of clothing versus having five pieces of clothing, even if they cost the same. But there are so many other ramifications. So, so let me read this Dvar Torah to you. Uh, I'm, I'm not starting from the beginning. I'm starting from about halfway through. But I think you'll, you'll get the point. If there's a huge uh, request for it, I, I don't want to, you know, plagiarize or anything. I'm totally giving him credit. It's not my words. Again, it's Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Um, so here goes. If there were only one human being, he or she might live at peace with the world. But we know that this could not be the case. It, quote, it is not good for man to be alone, unquote. We are social animals. And when one human being thinks he or she has godlike powers vis-a-vis -vis another human being, the result is violence. Therefore, thinking yourself godlike, if you are human, all too human, is very dangerous indeed. That is why, with one simple move, God transformed the terms of the equation. After the flood, he taught Noah, and through him, all humanity, that we should think not of ourselves, but of, other hu but of the human other as in the image of God. That is the only way to save ourselves from violence and self-destruction. This really is a life-changing idea. It means that the greatest religious challenge is, can I see God's image in one who is not in my image, whose color, class, culture, or creed is different from mine? People fear people not like them. That has been a source of violence for as long as there have been human life on earth. The stranger, the foreigner, the outsider is almost always seen as a threat. But what if the opposite is the case? What if the people not like us enlarge rather than endanger our world? There is a strange blessing we say after eating or drinking something over which we make the blessing shehakol. It goes, God creates many souls and their deficiencies. Understood literally, it is almost incomprehensible. Why should we praise God who creates deficiencies? One beautiful answer is that if we had no deficiencies, then lacking nothing, we would never need anyone else. We would be solitary rather than social. The fact that we are all different and all have deficiencies means that we need one another. What you lack, I may have. And what I lack, you may have. It is by coming together that we can each give the other something he or she lacks. It is our deficiencies and our differences that bring us together in mutual gain, in a win-win scenario. It is our diversity that makes us social animals. This is the insight expressed in the famous rabbinic statement, when a human being makes many coins in the same mint, they all come out the same. God makes us all in the same mint, the same image, his image, and we all come out different. This is the basis of what I call, it was the title of one of my books, The Dignity of Difference. This is a life-changing idea. Next time we meet someone radically unlike us, we should try seeing difference not as a threat, but as enlarging possibility, creating gift. After the flood, and to avoid a world filled with violence that led to the flood in the first place, God asked us to see his image in one who is not in my image. Adam knew that he was in the image of God. Noah and his descendants are commanded to remember that the other person is in the image of God. The great religious challenge is, can I see a trace of God in the face of a stranger? So 
this, I think, to me was like crystal clear. Why, why are we, who, who do we affect when we buy clothing that's cheap? Who, who's affected when we go to Walmart? Who's affected when we shop at Walmart? Well, let's see. The clothes at Walmart are cheap, okay? They're not expensive. You could go into Walmart and for $100 probably have a whole week's worth of clothes, you know? Five shirts, three skirts, underwear, socks, um, leggings, tights, probably for $100 or something close to that. And that's great for your wallet. But at what price does it come? First of all, there's the price to the people who make it. People who are in Cambodia and Vietnam and all these other places who are making our clothes for us here in America or even in Israel, they're making the clothes for us and they're earning, you know, less than a dollar a day in their countries. And it's not even really a living wage in their country. How would you feel if you were making that in the United States of America, a dollar a day, you would cry. This is slavery. I mean, basically the way that cheap clothing is made is that basically people are getting paid, but not a living wage. It's equivalent to slavery. So we have to be careful what we're purchasing, where we're purchasing it from. Not only are people who are making the clothes having a problem in Walmart, the people who sell the clothes also don't make that much money. So we have to sort of think about that in a, in a global way. It's the same thing with our trash. Sure, when we throw away things, it doesn't necessarily affect us because we don't live next to the landfill. But in the same way that other people are created in God's image, the same thing. And here Rabbi Sachs is saying it applies to everyone who's different from us. Everybody. It applies to everybody. So that's the first part of that. But let's think about the impact that these fast fashion, as they're called, places have on the environment okay so when we go shopping at a place like walmart or even if we're shopping at some place like zara where they're coming out with new clothes every single week and it's always you know rotating fashion if you go in this week if you go back in two weeks there's going to be something totally different in the floor they're making millions and millions of garments every single week and half of them are made of materials that aren't good quality and what happens when they rip? What, what do you do with them? Forget, first of all, that there's a huge environmental impact to making all of these garments, a lot of which don't sell and end up just going to the landfill rather than being discounted or given to people in poor countries. But a lot of what happens to these clothes is that after a few washings, you can't wear them anymore. Um, they rip more easily because the fabric is of lesser quality because it's the more idea to be trendy than to be, um, you know, fashion, like to have great style. You want to be on trend all the time so you get something new. But that's not really, in my opinion, what, you know, Judaism teaches at all. And it's not really the way we should think about shopping. I'm not saying that buying something new doesn't make you feel good. I'm not saying that at all. Manufacturers spend millions of dollars controlling the environment, controlling um, what 
happens in each and every store. They control the scents, they control the airflow, they control the music, they control the lighting, they control the packaging, they control, and they do lots of research to figure out exactly what we want in the smell, in the sound, in the, in the way that the hang tags even look, in the way the store is set up, in the way the packaging is set up. They research what we like and they spend millions and millions of dollars so that they can make more sales. The thing is, is that Americans produce 2,700 tons of garbage in their lifetime, each individual on average. That means that that's 192 trash trucks. <laughs> that's crazy. You, you yourself, not you and your family, just you create 192 trash trucks worth of trash through your lifetime. And there's a huge impact to doing that. I mean, think about it. We throw clothes away. And even if we recycle the clothes, who knows what's really happening to them? A lot of the clothes, especially inferior quality clothing or synthetic quality fibers, can't be recycled. And of course, it's better to put it in a bin and try to have it recycled. But a lot of people don't do that. They just throw it when they're done in the trash. And... What we really have to think about with shopping is number one, why is it making it ha us happy? What need is it fulfilling? Why is purchasing something new making us happy? Could we get a manicure and feel the same way? Could we have a pedicure or a massage? Or could we, I, I don't know, buy something that's like longer lasting than, than just, you know, buying a cheap shirt. So you didn't say your name and that's fine, I, but I feel like I wanna address you, um, whoever you are, mystery lady. What is it about the shopping that makes you feel better? I think that's something that's worth exploring why you feel good after you shop. But if you just love shopping, you love, some people just love the hunt. I used to be like that. I used to love the hunt of shopping. Great. Make it your profession. Become a personal shopper. Shop for other people who don't like shopping or don't have time to shop and say, here's, have them hand you a list of the things that they need and say, I'll go shopping for you. You know, if shop, if that's what you love, then make it work for you. Like, um, I remember once learning when I was a kid, like people who have a natural inclination to be, um, who like, you know, some people have like a natural inclination to be a murderer, not a murderer per se, but like are, have more violent tendencies. And so maybe those people should be like a shochet or maybe those people would make a really good surgeon. Not that they're violent, just that when you, you know, the idea like the, the making blood or whatever, just, I think if you could channel your need to shop into something more productive, it would be better for you. But when you think about, but the second question is, why should I buy better quality things? Is the answer is because of the environmental impact it has on like creating those items is so huge, but not to mention, it makes you disorganized to have 15, 20, 30 shirts. You can't get through them all. You won't rotate them all. You probably aren't buying them all because you like them. You're probably just buying them because they're cheap. And to me, you're profiting 
off of somebody else's hard labor just because it's cheap. You don't really even like it probably that much and you probably will just end up throwing it in the garbage. So this to me is a really like blatant reason why we should cut back on our shopping. So I hope that that illustrates the point for a lot of people. Just because something's cheap doesn't mean we can profit off someone else's hard labor. We shouldn't. I mean, to me, that's taking advantage. And clearly, it's not really in the spirit of viewing every person as if Hashem made them. It doesn't matter what color they are or what religion they are. Hashem makes us all. We're all here for a purpose. We all we all affect each other's lives in one way or another, even if we can't necessarily see it. It's like the butterfly effect. If the butterfly flaps its wings in the Amazon, does it affect people in the United States or in Israel? You know, the simple answer is no, of course not. How could it? But, but we know that that's not really true. We don't, the one flapping of the wings from the butterfly could affect the way the wind blows in one second. And that tree leaf in the Amazon blows one way and the bee goes the other way. And, you know, whoever, whatever, it's a big chain of events. And sometimes, you know, we call that hashkacha pratis, but in a more global scale, it's not just a small, oh, he did this and he did that. I mean, I'll tell you a funny story that uh, we had some friends visiting us who live in Beit Shemesh and they came to us in Haifa and he said, listen, he said to my husband, <laughs> they went to Shul Friday night and our friend, it's my husband's friend from, from when they were in high school together. And he said, listen, I, I, I know this guy, He's, he lived you know, where I grew up and for a few years and they're really good friends with my parents, but I can't remember his name, and my mom's gonna be so upset at me. And this was um, two weeks ago on Chavez, so it was a three-day yontif in America, but you know we had had like an intermittent day here in Israel. And it turns out that my husband's friend was looking for the guy who sits behind my husband in shul. <laughs> and like, Haifa is a big city. And who knows what could have, you know, he could have lived in our neighborhood and gone to a different big Knesset. We, you know, but Hashem put him right there behind my husband all this time for that minute to happen. And my husband knew him and, you know, they were friendly. And it's just like an amazing story. And that's such a small scale. But think about it from a larger perspective. When we... The more clothing we buy, the more retailers understand, like it's a signal to retailers. They want more clothes. We should make more clothes. And they go into overproduction and they produce and they produce and they produce. And they're always producing new clothing, better clothing, different clothing. And when we show retailers that this is what we want, they keep creating more and more things. And when we say this is not what we want, they make better quality. They maybe it costs more, but it's usually better quality. It's you know lasts longer. What we vote with our money. We tell the retailers what to make by voting with our money by what we purchase. It's a clear sign to them. Yes, we want it. No, we don't. If we purchased it, and that's that's the real point of of the whole thing. When we 
can say to retailers, this is not what we want. We want to spend our money on better quality stuff so that it lasts longer and it's better for the environment and we don't you know, profit off cheap labor. We, we have the power to, to vote that way with our money. It's not so much about saving money. Obviously, if you reduce the shopping, even if you're buying better quality clothing, you will still, um, you will save money, but it's not even about the saving money. It's about profiting off other people's hard work. And I know that's like the American way, the American value to, oh, someone else is working hard and I can, they'll charge me a dollar for this and I can sell it for $5, then I've made $4 profit and I haven't had to work that hard. And we very much adapt to this sort of theory of things, but it really takes advantage of people and I, I, I don't like it. <laughs> so I hope that that answers your question. I know it was sort of a long-winded answer and I will try, you know, I, I just, I hope that it answers your question. Now, I know that you had two other questions, which was, um, your son also gets, um, like little trinkets and stuff from, from school or whatever, and you don't want to throw them out because you don't want him to feel bad about it. That's fine. Don't throw them out. Uh, my kids have a box in their room where they can store all of their stuff, junk. <laughs> and every few weeks we go through their box and we clear it out. And the way that I, I enable them, I give them the power to pass things on is I say to them, every single day, let's be careful about what we're bringing into our home. When I take them shopping, you know, even if it's just for groceries, I say to them, hey, do we actually need this? Is this something that we will use? Will it just go bad? You know, they, they are learning to have this conversation with themselves about spending. Will I use it? Do I need it? Is it important to me? And it helps them learn executive function executive function and it helps them understand why we don't need to give in to every single impulse that we have because they're learning will this just sit in my drawer and nobody's going to play with it or am i actually going to use this my kids sometimes don't even accept certain toys because they know it's junk and i don't really need it and they don't want to be saddled with it in the first place and so that's really also sort of an important thing to teach our kids. It's not something that's going to happen from one conversation. I've been working on this conversation with my kids for years. And it's my, my mom wanted to buy a gift for my son. And my husband was really, really adamant. No, he already has something like that already. He doesn't need it. We don't want it in the house. And my son was so mad at my husband. And... When we sat down and we explained to him, you already have this one. If you don't want this old thing that you have anymore, fine. If you want a new one, that's fine. Sell the old one. But you can't have two because there's no point. One is just going to sit there and collect dust and it's going to take up space. And after we talk about it and rationalize things with them a little bit, it's easier for them to see where we're coming from. You have the control to have this conversation with your kids. It has to be an ongoing conversation. 
the thing is, is if you're not exemplifying the behavior of, of bringing in new things all the time, or that came out wrong. If you're not exemplifying the no shopping and minimizing your stuff because you're actually going shopping all the time and coming home with new stuff all the time, there's no way for them to get the message that these trinkets are just garbage. You have to exemplify the same way. Like if you want your kids to learn how to keep kosher, you have to keep kosher. It's not like you can't expect your kids to do something that you're not already doing. So if you want to make it easier for your kid to not feel down about getting rid of these things, then exemplify decluttering for him. Um, this is also really great advice for people who are having trouble getting their spouses on board. If you are having trouble getting your husband agree agreeing, if you're having trouble getting your husband to agree to declutter with you, then this is a great way and a great method to encourage him. You do it. You let him see how happy you are, how much better your life is because you have less. You don't have to spend as much time doing the laundry or putting away your clothes or tidying up every night. And when you lead by example, that really helps other people in your house. So that really helps. <laughs> um, and the th last question that you asked me were, how, how do your kids eat breakfast for dinner? So my kids, uh, do they like it? Don't they get bored of it? You know what? We are in a restaurant. I'm not a restaurant. You know, we don't have eggs for dinner every single night. We just have it for dinner sometimes. And there's no real rule. I mean, in Israel, it's really common to eat vegetables for breakfast. American think, Americans think that that's totally weird. I love eating vegetables for breakfast. It actually, uh, it actually makes my morning really great. I totally don't mind eating vegetables for breakfast anymore. So it's only weird to us because that's not like what we're accustomed to, but there's actually nothing wrong with it. And um, actually, uh, you know, sometimes I'll even make eggs and I'll, you know, you can throw in some salami with it or something like that or um, you can buy really delicious kosher beef bacon here in Israel. Um, and sometimes I make that for the kids and the kids think it's wild and they have a great time and they love it. And we eat that for dinner or sometimes we have pancakes for dinner or I don't know. We just, there's no reason that you have to have pancakes for breakfast and a casserole for dinner. There's just, who said, <laughs> I mean, people eat quiche for breakfast. So um, and if my kids are, don't want something for dinner, they know they can make themselves a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but I'm not a restaurant. They get one thing and that's it. <laughs> so, um, it's also about, you know, discipline, um, with them. Who cares if they're bored? If they're bored, let them make dinner. My kids certainly have the capacity to do that now at this point. So, okay. So I really hope that that answers your question. If it doesn't answer your question, please call me back and we can discuss it further. But when I saw that Zavar Torah, it really cemented not only this aspect, but something we had talked about a few weeks ago, which was also, why should we care what happens to our trash? Because everybody's made B'Selem Elohim, and we all have to be considerate of that fact. Okay. I didn't get a chance to listen to every single voicemail. Um, there are a lot of them this week. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I missed you all too during Yantif. I totally understand that you are all busy and had other things to do. Um, I wasn't actually expecting any calls, but I was just saying I didn't actually have any, and so I was all caught up. Um, okay, so 
I'm going to answer two more questions today. Uh, The first one was the robots. (laughs) I can't believe that it took me 32 episodes to tell you that I had a robot. Um, They're not that big. They're about the size of a tire hubcap. Um, The reason why I run it at night is because if I'm standing there, sometimes it bumps into me. Or you can run it when you're not home. You don't have to run it at night. We actually have two floors and... Uh, like I said, it doesn't run on the upstairs floor. It it actually comes with like a, a virtual wall where if I wanted to run it upstairs, I could. And I could just put this, it's a little like block and it sends a message to the robot saying, you know, here's where the stairs are. Don't go past this certain point. And that's how it doesn't fall down the stairs. So if you do have stairs and you want a robot upstairs, it's possible there's like these virtual walls you can use with them and they they come with it you don't have to buy them extra um there's a lot of different models i don't want to say which model to get like i said i have an older one they range in price from 1500 shekels to almost 4000 shekels which is uh like three or four hundred dollars to you know nine hundred dollars or something like that depending on the model that you get you can get them at Bed Bath & Beyond, you can get them at Target, you can get them at Best Buy. I don't know which models you can get where. Like I said, I bought mine secondhand. I wasn't really that particular about the model. I didn't care. I just wanted something to vacuum up the floor every night. Um, it just, so it's funny. One time we had, uh, we were away in America and we had a robotics engineer house sitting for us. And he was a robotics en- engineer doing an internship at the Technion, and he was staying here. And we asked him, I said, every night, can you just run the robot? Because a lot of dust comes in the house, even if the windows aren't open, just run the robot every night. So he said to me, he said, actually, he said to my husband, and my husband told me, he said, I watched the robot for like three days, and I can't figure out the pattern that it takes. And he was really, I mean, here's the uh, uh, engineer who specializes in robots, and he couldn't figure out the path that it takes. It's totally random. It has like sensors. It learns where things are in your house. So for example, it knows when it's like coming close to the sofa. If you move it, it has to like relearn the path. Um, It takes about three or four days for it to learn the path. But every single day it goes on a totally random path. I, I have no idea how it works. It's really, really awesome and great. And I really, really love it. They make a new one now. I was researching it last night. Um, it's square actually, and it's a, called a scuba. And the scuba is what actually washes the floor. Um, so it's really great because let's say you swept the floor and now you're going out to do some errands. You could press the button and the floor is washed by the time you get home. For people who can't afford a cleaner, uh, it's actually a really good solution. I think I have a friend here in Haifa. She has both of them. <laughs> um, she has both a Roomba and a scuba. She runs the Roomba first and then she runs the scuba. The newer scubas do both vacuum and cleaning. Um, I. I don't know exactly how they work or if they work well, but I've heard really good things about them and a lot of people I know who have them really, really love them. So I totally recommend the robots. Um, it's really been a machaya for us. We really think it's great and it, it really does help us. Um, and like I said, it forces us every single night 
to make sure that there's nothing on the floor <laughs> and really tidy up every single night. Because if we want to run the vacuum every day, you know, we have to make sure there's nothing on the floor. Um, there have been times I have this one certain chair and it has like five, it's a rolling chair and it has like five legs. Once in a while, if, it, if, if everything is positioned the right way, we've woken up in the morning where it's like caught in the legs. <laughs> But Bedarach Klal, it works really, really well, and we don't have any problems with it, and um, it's really been a lifesaver for us. So I hope that answers all of your questions about the iRobot. Um, I really don't recommend getting any of the other brands. I haven't heard good things about them. The Roomba is the first, the best. Um, I make no money from saying that to you. I just, I really love mine. Um, okay. The last question I want to answer is a zero waste question. A lady called me and asked me about Q-tips. Q-tips are one of the things I still use. Um, if you buy Q-tips that have a wooden stick, you can compost them uh, if, you have, if you're using municipal compost um, because they're 100% cotton and usually they have like a wooden stick. If the stick is plastic or plastic coated, then you can't compost it. And that creates a little bit more of an issue in terms of waste. I still keep Q-tips in the house. It's one of the few things that I still use, not in zero waste. Um, I have like a history of ear problems and I find that there's just nothing that really helps me as much. Um, I have seen recently a few like wax cleaner, ear wax cleaner things that are made from plastic. There are like these um, metal like ear scooper things that are supposed to help. I haven't tried one of them or um, looked into them, but you could probably, I think that they sell them at Sephora. So you could probably go into a Sephora and check, you know, ask them if they have like a, a device that, you know, a metal, it's metal. Um, I know that there's a plastic one with a rubber tip also. Um, but yeah, I haven't found a good solution to Q-tips. If anybody has a good solution to Q-tips, I'm open to hearing it and I will um, announce it. Okay, so keep your questions coming. I know I still have a bunch of questions that I haven't answered. I'm gonna do my best to answer them for next week, Bezrat Hashem. Uh, I love hearing from all of you ladies. I, I missed you all too. And um, I'm, so, I'm so glad to hear uh, all the questions. One thing that I will say is I, I got an email from a lady and she wanted to know if I do home visits. I do do home visits. I will come to America, even though I'm in Israel. Um, if you want to get a group together, that's fine too. And, you know, if you're interested, you can leave me a private message. Um, but yeah, it is possible. If anybody else was wondering, I can come to your house and help you. But um, send me a message or leave me a voicemail. Uh, okay, so I'm looking forward to all of your questions for next week. As always, I want to remind you, I don't keep you organized. Hashem keeps you organized. I, I love hearing from all of you, so I hope to hear from you all soon. You can reach me either via voicemail. For those of you who want to, you can send me an email, Rebecca, R-E-B-E-K-A-H, at balaganbegone.com. That's B-A-L-A-G-A-N-B-E-G-O-N-E.com. Rebecca at balaganbegone.com. Um, and I will answer. <laughs> you could tweet me if you want or find me on Instagram. 
uh, I am happy to communicate with everybody in any way. So <laughs> please uh, get in touch with me. I want to hear from you. Um, and I will, Bezer at Hashem, answer all the outstanding questions or as many as I can from this week, next week, but keep the questions coming. So we'll be two weeks behind. So keep listening. Uh, remember, Hashem keeps you organized and have a great remainder of your week and a wonderful, fantastic day. And I look forward to speaking to you all again next week. This was episode 30. 32. So listen for episode 33 next week.